This is a podcast by One Life Christian Church in Baldwin, New York. We pray that the following podcast would encourage you, build you up in the gospel, and lead you closer to Jesus. We remind you that these are simply tools to help you in your walk and ask that you still look for a local church to attend and serve in. Welcome to the living room. Church. I'm so glad to be with you guys here this morning. My name, again, is Justin. I serve and have the privilege of serving here as a pastor of just care and, and discipleship. And we get to close out our sermon series today on teach us how to pray, right? To teach us how to pray, Lord. Can you show us? And we're going to look at the few words that Jesus mentioned and when he said, thy will be done, meaning your will be done. As powerful that statement is, let's be honest, it's probably very difficult to actually say those words in our prayers. So turn with me if you have your Bible or your app or the screens. There's so many different formats nowadays. But turn to me to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 9 to 11. We've been looking at these verses for the past few weeks, but let's uh, keep diving into them. So again, Matthew 6, 9 to 11, it's the word of the Lord. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is it in heaven. And verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, as we lay down the things in our hearts and our minds and surrender them to you, knowing how difficult, Lord, it is for many of us to actually say what thy, may your will be done. Even if for us that if we don't even know it or understand it fully, help us to learn now and understand and process that even at this moment. Holy Spirit, speak to us in each and every one of us. And we thank you and we lay this at your feet. And praise in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned before, we're wrapping up our series and just what it means to teach us, Lord, how, how to pray. So this morning, whether you are a religious person, a non-religious person, an atheist, or even an agnostic, the reality is that almost everyone finds themselves praying at one point or another in their lives. Think about it. I work also outside of one life as a hospice chaplain, and I've come across many folks, especially near the end of their life, whatever they believe in, they're always turning to God, and they want to, or whatever they believe in, and wanting to pray, even in those moments. And let's face it, the reality is that people pray in fear and distress as part of some religious duty when we want something so badly, or when we simply need answers to life's questions. But what actually is prayer? What is it? As we've been talking about these in the past few weeks, prayer, I think, at the essence, at the core of it, is basically us talking to God. All right? Think about it. The God who has spoken through his world has brought the universe into being. The God who holds the vastness of creation together by his power. This God is the God who actually listens to us. And he listens to us as an attentive father, a father who cares for his sheep. Despite how unworthy we may feel even approaching him, he comes and listens to us in our prayers. 
God has done what we could never do and made us an access to his throne and made it possible for you and I. That means we need to reduce our distractions and increase our interactions with God because true prayer is the means by which we align ourselves to God's will. It means that we draw near to a holy God and so that we're able to pray what Jesus basically has taught us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But here's the thing, as true as that is and what Jesus even actually modeled for us, how difficult and hard it is either to believe it or even pray those words. Whether you've been born in the States or not, think about what our culture says. Our culture says that the more free we are to decide what is right or wrong for ourselves, having no one else tell us how to live our lives, the happier we'll be. Let that sit in for a minute. But if you claim... But if you claim to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, then you know what Jesus has already said when it's time to pray to God. That you need to say to him, thy will be done. And that goes right to the teeth of our own culture. It goes up against everything that maybe you yourself have been taught growing up. So what does that mean? Let me share this quote to you by a lady named Barbara. I don't think she's a Christian, but she really captured this thought really well. I think that speaks to the culture that's around us. And she said this, the fastest growing brand of religion is of the magical name it and claim it, right, in which the deity exists only to meet one's immediate self-identified needs. So in other words, Many, many people are following a religion that basically says this. You worship the God so that this God will give you what you want. You just tell your God what you want and he will give you what you want. So in essence, this religion that we're hearing and been talking about is basically saying, we're praying out loud, my will be done. And this is what Pastor Isaac touched upon, I think, on the first week. Where too many and too many times we become before God with our list of things before God. And we approach God as if he's simply a Santa Claus. And if that's the case, you miss the point of who truly God is. And that's why sometimes we approach God by saying, my will be done, instead of saying, your will be done. And as I said before, this goes right up against our own cultural things, and it's even bled into Christianity itself, where we've gotten so confused even there's a great tension maybe even inside of us, even in this morning, where daily maybe we'll come with our own personal desires, where we want to control the situation before us, whatever it is that you're going through that you want to bring before God, because we're wrestling inside of us, Lord, I want my will to be done. I don't want to give you this control, because that means I have to trust in your wisdom and your timing, because we're still fighting. There's a tension inside of us. You see, the struggle that we have when it comes to the purpose of prayer is when we interpret it as little more than a means of persuading God to grant our petitions and wishes, then we've missed the point. This is why Jesus instructs us in how to pray. He has us pray, thy will be done before we ever ask our daily bread. If you follow along that prayer, it talks about the fatherhood of God. Then it talks about your kingdom come. Then it speaks about your will be done. Then it gets to your daily bread, all of your needs. 
Why does God go through that order for us and model that even for us? So my hope and my goal today, even throughout this series that we've been learning and processing over the weeks, that when we pray as Jesus taught us, that we find that the true purpose of prayer is to get God himself. That's the goal. Not merely to get God's gifts, but to get God himself. That should always be the end of our prayer and our goals. So let me set the stage for us by throwing this question. Then why is it such a struggle for us to pray, thy will be done? I think there's three things we could take away from this text. One is man's heart is so self-centered. Two, because man's heart is so self-centered, we're still praying our kingdom come instead of saying your kingdom come as the Lord instructed us. And then lastly, what I want to look at is that it's because we lost sight of the one man who was truly brave enough to say, thy will be done, which is Jesus. Because the next time you see someone say, thy will be done, was Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was at that moment of sacrifice that Jesus, in a moment of obedience to the Father, said, thy will be done. And because of that, you and I have a moment to imitate that before the Father and be able to say, thy will be done because of what Christ did. So we'll look at that. So with that, let's jump into our first point because man's heart is self-centered as to why I think that we struggle to even say, thy will be done. Let's look at that text again. It says that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. See, the point of prayer is that the heart needs to center back on God and worship around him. But when we leave outside of that orbit, we basically crash and burn. In prayer, we need to make God central and the key thing in all things. That you need to make him central in your thinking, in your planning, so that you could draw into the sweetness of who God truly is. By refocusing back on who he is. Then and only then can you really get back to the point of saying, Lord, here are my daily bread. What are my daily needs? These are things that I need. What it basically is trying to say, you need to center around the fatherhood, right? The fatherhood of God before entering into my daily bread. That's why Jesus opens that up by saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because we miss that. And instead we skip all of that and jump to our daily bread. So what, is that, what does that mean for us to pray Thy will be done? And I think Apostle Paul does it really well. If you get a chance, read the New Testament, especially all his letters to the churches that were being planted throughout the different cities in that time. And when those churches were being planted, he was praying specifically in chapters 1, 2, and 3 over the people. And most of our prayers, like, yeah, let's pray for their healing. Let's pray for their troubles. Let's pray for all sorts of things that are going on. But Paul does something totally different because he knew what Jesus meant when he gave the Lord's Prayer to them. Right? What Paul, it was unique and different. Paul, instead of praying those things, he basically lays out his prayer by saying, let me give them more spiritual insight onto the overwhelming glory and beauty of who God is. Because man's heart does not go to that first whatsoever. Let that transform them. Let that draw them into a deep love for God. He wants that more than anything else for his friends at that time and even for us. And he leaves out all the other things that maybe are plaguing them. And he doesn't mention any of them. Why? Here's why. 
He knows, like I said before, a man's heart doesn't always want to align or make God central. So what are those things even plaguing us as to why we don't even focus even on the fatherhood of God when it comes to our prayers, why we always jump to our daily bread? Here are some things that I think plague us. I think one is personal desire and controls that we have. Maybe it's difficult to surrender our own desires and ambitions to God's will, where we often have specific plans and outcomes in mind, and praying for his will to be done means that we have to relinquish control and trusting in his wisdom and his timing. Maybe sometimes it's the fear of the unknown, meaning embracing God's will may lead us to an unfamiliar territory or even require stepping out of our own comfort zone, which might be unsettling. I think this is a big one. I think this other one is maybe sometimes it's the past disappointments where previous experience of unanswered prayers or difficult circumstances can make us hesitant to fully trust the God's, trust that God's will is ultimately good for us. Maybe sometimes the lack of understanding the completeness or comprehend God's intention and his bigger picture that he has laid out for us, that that itself could be a challenge. Or maybe it's also the unresolved doubts and questions, that lingering doubts or questions that you have about God's goodness or his plans that could ultimately hinder our ability to wholeheartedly pray for his will to be done. I share that and I lay that out for you because I think that's what's in man's heart. I share this with also because I think at the root of it all, we're all obsessed with the idea that the main reason that we're unhappy is because of the things outside of us. I think that the main reason we are unhappy is because of the certain conditions on the outside of us that are making us unhappy and therefore we become so obsessed with changing those conditions and we think everything will ultimately be fine if that happens. That's not true. See, Paul and Jesus was right here when Paul and, and Jesus basically say praying consistently over and over again for the change that really needs to happen, it's actually inside, not the circumstances that are being surrounded around you. And basically what they were saying is that your real problem is that you're lacking and enjoying who God is, a lack of love for God, a lack of understanding God, that your real problems come from your internal condition, not those external conditions. That's the core and I think that's what Paul here and even Jesus here is mentioning for us because we ultimately think if those things outside of us are fixed, maybe we'll be happy and things will be better. Well, Jesus is saying something much deeper and it's really inside. The reason that we're always praying in a certain way for the inside is because we are so obsessed what we think is really making us unhappy on the outside. And Paul knows that that's really the true problem that we have because we forget the true privileges that we have in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you this question. If you are a Christian this morning, why at times do you feel so miserable? Maybe you're anxious. And the reason you're anxious is because you don't know, know enough about the goodness and the power of God. You may know it intellectually, but it's not something that thrills you. It's not something that affects you. It's not something that is grasping you and daily that you need it. And Paul knows that it's not the threatening situation that's making you even miserable. It's your inability to focus on God. Or let me give you another example. Why do you feel like you sometimes you're depressed? 
In every case when I'm depressed, I know it's because there's something I want more. It's something that I value more than the inheritance that I have as a Christian. So let me bring this down even a little bit further. As you know, I have three little ones. They might have been running around here so far. The twins, and a, they're six, and another little one that is four. And can I tell you, all they do is fight. <laughs> I mean, they fight constantly. Now they're at the pulling of hair, saying all sorts of things. Man, it just never ends. On top of that, the twins, there's two of them, of course, they're bullying the little one, who's only four. Yeah, and... Um, one day I hear them screaming and yelling and God knows what's going on. And then I find that the twins broke the, the four-year-old's doll. You see the head laying there on the floor. <laughs> so then, you know, as a dad, you're thinking, oh, I can make the situation all better. You know, I'll try to make it at least better and, and, and try to fix it. So then I go up to my four-year-old and basically tell her, hey, look, I know your doll is broken or whatever, but I have a better toy. And this toy, guess what, is worth over $1,000. So much better. Thinking, of course, a four-year-old could comprehend that, right? But I'm just saying that to her. Like, oh, this toy is so much better. It's worth so much more. And all she's doing is basically crying. (laughs) She's so fixated on this toy that is broken that my offer to her, even of $1,000 so toy, which is really not, but I'm making it sound like it, will make all her problems better, will make everything better and all that. And all that she wants, even in that moment, is just her simple doll toy that's broken to be fixed and to get, you know, what, what needs to be done. And of course, when you look at that child, you know the real problem of the child is not the doll or the lack of the doll. Even when I look at my child, who doesn't realize her true condition, what's really going on, because if she had the, the cognitive development and the understanding and the capable of knowing, of course, who wouldn't want that $1,000 toy of sort? It's so much better than that broken doll itself that she doesn't realize her own condition. Now, here's what I'm trying to get at with you. Are there any of you sitting here who has received Christ as Lord and Savior? And you know you've been adopted into the kingdom. And you know that you're the protector of the divine nature. And you know that you're going to rule and reign with Christ forever. And yet, when you face with your circumstances, maybe financial problems or relational problems, and it's absolutely, utterly destroying your own happiness, and you look and say, what good is it to be a Christian? Or you don't maybe admit that consciously, but unconsciously, it's working down inside there already. You're in the exact same condition, maybe even as my four-year-old child. And that's why Paul here was right when Jesus is right too, that it's not you having that financial thing worked out or that relationship thing that needs to be worked out. It's that you don't realize your true condition inside of yourself. You don't realize who you are and what you got in Christ And that's why Paul is constantly praying for the inner man. He's praying that they may be strengthened with the full knowledge and the glory and the beauty of who God is. And that's why Jesus even laid out that prayer. Because we forget our true condition. We forget truly who our Father is, who listens and loves for us. And that's why Jesus, and even here, and Paul here mentions over and over again through the text, to know that the width and the breadth and the depth and be filled with the fullness of God. That's the truth. That's why prayer needs to open with that. 
Church, I think this is key for us to truly understand your true condition, even when we don't have the capability of doing that. It's true that we need to know that to center ourselves back on the fatherhood of God, because we do forget our condition. And I love this quote by Tim Keller, a well-known pastor here in New York City, who passed away um, maybe a few months ago, but he wrote this to capture a lot of the thought that I just shared with you. He said, if we cannot say thy will be done from the bottom of our hearts, we will never know any peace. We will feel compelled to try to control people and control our environments and make things the way we believe they ought to be. And yet to control life like this is beyond our abilities and we will just dash ourselves upon the rock. This is why Calvin, a well-known theologian, adds to that prayer, thy will be done, is to submit not only our wills to God, but even our feelings, so that we do not become despondent, bitter, and hardened by the things that befall us. See, prayer, church, is hard work. It's not easy, but it becomes more meaningful when we center around the beauty and the majesty of who God is. And when you're able to do that, you will be able to utter the exact words that Jesus even taught us to say, thy will be done. Let us ensure that our prayers are always centered on the fatherhood of who God is, align our prayers with God at the core, and explore those reasons and struggles why we sometimes it's hard for us to say his will to be done. And here's the thing, one significant factor I think it's really important for us. There's power in prayer. You know that? There is power in prayer. That's why Jesus even teaches us to pray. When we pray, Jesus' power is flooded out into our cities, into our lives, into the, the neighbors and people that we come in and around over and over because he wants to transform them. He wants to make his name known. Are we tapping into that power? Because if you tap into that power, you're actually rebelling against the status quo that is surrounding us and the culture around us because we're seeking God's divine rule in all aspects of life. And that's why when Jesus basically taught us that prayer, he said, focus, yes, on who God is and his holiness. But then you notice that the prayer shifted to the next part where it says, your kingdom come. What does that mean? That's what I want to look at here in this next point. Because Jesus said, pray for your kingdom to come, meaning God's kingdom, your kingdom come. But what is that? But often, because man's heart is so self-centered, we basically say, our kingdom come. We may not say it out loud, but that's what really what we're saying, our kingdom to come. All right, so let's look at what this means. Jesus, throughout <clears throat> in the book of Matthew, he speaks so much about the kingdom. Right? It's a new kingdom that God wants to bring forth for people to experience and know who truly how things were created and ought to be, Right? And see, Jesus speaks much about this in the book of Matthew, whether it's from the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he want to tell people? To enter into this kingdom, you got to come like what? A child. A childlike attitude. So what Jesus is doing, he's emphasizing on this kingdom culture, a very different culture that is so different from what you have known and experienced, whether it's from your family, your neighborhood, your work, whatever it is, I want to show you something different of my own kingdom. And I think Jesus focuses us to when you truly know Father's heart, then you know what he desires for his kingdom to be displayed throughout the world. And see, when that kingdom comes and we're able to pray, that's when we know what his will is truly. So I want you to think about this. How many of you have ever experienced culture shock, some kind of culture shock? 
If you've experienced that, whether you've been to another country or maybe even another state of sort, or maybe if you had that new job, there's always some kind of difference in, some, in that job, in that culture that we feel. Maybe sometimes even in church, even if this is your first time here at One Life, maybe your background may come from, I don't know, a Baptist or Presbyterian or Pentecostal, you name it, the list goes on. Or whatever background that you come, you come in here and like, this is a culture shock. This is different from what I'm probably used to. I can still remember a time where <clears throat> a few years ago, uh, I went to Oklahoma. I don't know who goes there, but I went there. I went to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Sorry for anyone who's from there. But, uh, so I went to Oklahoma, born and raised in New York, Brooklyn, and I'm expecting people to curse me out, yell at me, or something, right? But they're so nice. <laughs> Even when I'm waiting online on the grocery, I'm like, this is taking forever, but they're so patient and calm, and they're so nice. I don't know if they're being real or not, but at least they were nice, right? And where, from New York, I'm expecting the complete opposite. It was a complete shock to me how nice they were because I was waiting for a middle finger or something. <laughs> but none of that happened. In the same way, I think Jesus, what he's trying to do here and getting out for us is that when we have a tendency to pray for things of our kingdom to come, our will be done, we say for ourselves only and the situations around us, but Jesus really wants us to focus and pray for his kingdom to come because he wants what's in heaven to come down here on earth. So what does that mean? Let me throw this statement at you. In our culture, everybody's trying to get to a better place. But in the kingdom culture, God's kingdom culture, we're trying to make our current place better. That's what Jesus wants. For everybody in our own culture right now, we're trying to get to some kind of better place, some happiness, something that we're looking for. But in the kingdom culture, it's telling us, hey, look, where you're currently at right now, I want to make that place better. What do I mean? Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 says, you are the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, you know, in, in our culture, we live for the weekends. I love the weekends. I'm longing for the weekends. Right? I think, I think on Wednesdays, they call it, what, hump day, right? Because we know Friday's almost there. So we're longing for the weekends. On top of that, we love vacations. I know we're longing for vacation in our family. We're going to go down to Florida. Who doesn't want to be at the beaches, right? And enjoy what's going on. And enjoy the weather. Enjoy the water. I think Hollywood even has done a great, phenomenal job of showing this. Because there's always some kind of hero who, at the end of the movie, is sitting at the beach, sipping on some pina colada or whatever drink it is, and they're enjoying life and forgetting everything that else is going on as to why we're maybe sometimes we want to just escape and just go on. But in the kingdom culture, he says, pray that heaven will be brought down here on earth meaning that you don't have to go somewhere else. You don't need to change your zip code. You get to be right here in the middle in the center of God's will to become. Because wherever you go, God wants you to bring the kingdom culture with you. That means the places that you eat, play, and work. Acts for heaven to be brought down. Acts. That's what the Father wants. He wants his kingdom to fall down. Because wherever you go, God wants to bring that for you. So when you go to the restaurant today, say afterwards here or somewhere to eat, 
bring the kingdom culture with you. Because you bring just a little bit of heaven here on earth, wherever you go. So when you go to school or work or whatever it is on Tuesday, you bring a little bit of heaven with you. Or when you go to work, you bring a little bit of heaven with you because you're walking into a culture of the kingdom. Because that's who God called us to be. Let me tease a little bit of this. Come this fall, I'll be leading a class on faith and works. It's to show and illustrate that each and every one of us, if you are working, that our industries, whether it's in transportation, whether it's healthcare, hospitality, uh, being an entrepreneur, technology, uh, the healthcare, wherever the field may be, we have an influence to bring God's kingdom into those places as believers and as followers of Christ. We have influence because God wants us to bring his attitude, his value, his culture into those places that we have an opportunity to do that, to change that with our co-workers, to this infrastructure, everything to make a great impact for the city around us. And that's God's purpose when he says, bring my kingdom because there's something worthwhile in this that the world is yet to see or experience. Show them through your life and through your prayer. And I think that's so central to God's heart as to why he said, focus on the fatherhood, but now say that your kingdom. But often we're saying our kingdom, where we might say, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to deal with my boss. I don't want to deal with X, Y, and Z. But pray these things of his kingdom to come. And I think that's why it's so fascinating when we see in John chapter 14 where Jesus says, anyone who has faith in me will do what I am doing. And he will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You know what that kind of claim means even for you and I? He's saying that I am going to the Father, right? Jesus said he's going to the Father. He's going to sit down at the right hand, and I'm going to begin to spread the kingdom through the prayers of my people. Why? Because if you look at God's heart, you'll start to see in his kingdom that God hates oppression and poverty. God hates pain and suffering. God hates conflict and strife. God hates all those things because he wants his kingdom to come and be shown to the world through the power of his spirit, through each and each and each and individual of all of us here, of the Holy Spirit working inside of us to bring off that kingdom to those places because we know the consequence of evil and sin that lurks around us. Jesus Christ, there's such power in that. He wants to release that in and through us. And this is what I want you to understand even through this, that there's power and to pray that boldly for his kingdom, right? His kingdom to come. Wherever you step foot outside these doors and these walls of this place, wherever you go, Pray for his kingdom because prayer is a, is a way to rebel against the status quo that we see in our culture because there's power in Jesus. There's power in his name. There's power in that prayer to see his kingdom be spread out. Now, you might still push back at me and say, so how do you know this power is real, Justin? Or you might even tell me, Justin, I'm not Jesus. I, I can't pray that. That's hard to do. I commend you for even saying that. So let's look closer to the one who I think was truly brave enough to truly say that will be done for us to even be able to imitate that. Look at my last point. Matthew, let's look at Matthew 26, 38 to 39. <clears throat> and then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. <clears throat> overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So stay here and keep watch with me. 
39, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. See, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, right? This is right before he's about to go through the brutal beating, all that needs to take place into the cross and die. See, the Bible describes this punishment for sin as being cut off from God, losing his support for all of humanity's life. And this is a result of complete darkness and inability to even function. So Jesus here at this moment, he's praying, right? He's praying because he's experiencing for the very first time really a a rejection from God himself. A, A rejection knowing that this punishment that he's about to endure and take and be our ultimate substitute anticipating and foretasting this agony that is so overwhelming for Jesus while he's in this garden to the point where he's actually sweating out blood. And in despite of those immense difficulty, he, Jesus, surrenders to God's will where he prayed, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I think that's a powerful statement because it shows that Jesus understood that the greatest purpose of blessing that will come from his obedience. See, the cost of him saying, thy will be done, was even unfathomable for Jesus to even mention. Because he could have completely said, why do I need to die for these wretched people? He could have easily done that and said, screw this, forget it. But he didn't. But in an act of obedience and in glorious deliverance, he comes and because he lays down his life, a world is redeemed and renewed and people are saved for eternity with him in his kingdom. Like I said, you might be pushing back still. And you may tell me, hey, Justin, so what? That's very interesting. And it's very moving. But I'm not Jesus. So if you're trying to tell me that I got to turn around and look at all of my problems in the face and say, not my will, but thy be done, you're nuts. Because I'm not Jesus. Jesus could do that because he was a son of God. But I'm not Jesus. I get it. But listen for a second. We can't duplicate exactly what Jesus said or did but we could definitely imitate his surrendering to God's will and maybe even a lower level. We're not asked to face the same level of sacrifice that he did, but we can choose to trust God's plan and seek for his will in our lives, even a little bit knowing the depth of the sacrifice that Christ has done for us. Through imitating Christ's submission, we could experience transformation and find God's purposes filled in us. Let me share this. Like I said before, I work in, a, in hospice as a chaplain, and, and work has been kind of tricky a little bit, and really has to do with the organizational things that are going on, a lot of changes, and it's gotten me frustrated with my job, where even my job is kind of threatened a little bit, where I probably have to maybe get fired if I don't do X, Y, and Z, or if I don't do whatever. But it was getting frustrating to a point where I'm like, God, what is going on? I just want to be faithful and just take care of the people that you've put before me, not deal with all the other nonsense that's going up in upper management. So this bitterness, this anger, this frustration started to brew up even inside of me where I know the text says, you know, pray for your kingdom to come. But right now I want my kingdom to come. That's to fire everybody so I can move on. 
But in my heart, I was like, what's going on? And I think a few weeks ago, I don't know if it was Pastor Isaac or Marlon, somebody gave some message, and it really focused and honed into the fatherhood of God. Whereas when I'm feeling this tension at my work, I'm applying to all sorts of jobs because I'm trying to work out of my own strength to look for a way out and deal with, I can't go through the suffering or beating or whatever it is, knowing what's happening. And then I said, you know what? In all of my prayers, I never really spent time focusing on you, God. It was always straight to my daily needs. Get me out of this. Take revenge on my coworkers and my bosses and everyone, but never focusing on really what's God's heart, even as I'm here in this current place and how I can make it better for his kingdom to come. So at that moment is where I said, I think I need to just surrender and just trust God at that moment. And now there's some opportunities that I can't even explain that God's opening at this moment that I'm still in, that I'm still processing in real time as I speak and even share with you. So hear me on this. I think many of us, maybe we misunderstand praying thy will be done as a mere part of just resonation, meaning a sense of having no choice but to surrender to God's will. And if that's the case, then you miss the point. What if, we're, what if you see everything that has happening in your life as actually part of God's maybe loving purpose, meaning that you acknowledge God as the only love that will never reject you, that you can find safety and comfort and, and peace in that love all alone when you're in the midst of that suffering or trial that you may be enduring because you're going into the heart and trusting in God. In praying thy will be done, it means that we will lay down life's glory in the dust. And that means that considering our relationships, our fame, our money, our status are all dead. This means that letting go, stepping into who God is and be captivated by him. And focus on his values, focus on his eternal truth, which is lasting and significant. In essence, that we could be able to pray thy will be done. I'm going to invite the worship, the worship team to come up as we come to a close here. And I want to end with this. In the book of Genesis, there is a character named Jacob. If you're familiar with the story, I think there's a little Jacob in each and every one of our hearts. This is what I mean. <clears throat> See, in the book of Genesis, we encounter the story of Jacob as an unhappy man who wrestled with God throughout his life. Right? He was constantly in conflict with others, struggling for love, relationship, and even success. That goes back to my first point, that we see that man's heart is fighting for his will. One night alone in the dark desert, a stranger appears and engages in this profound wrestling with Jacob. As time passes, Jacob begins to perceive that the encounter holds even a deeper meaning for him in his life. He realizes that he has been angry at God, feeling undeserving of his blessing despite his schemes and struggles. So during this intense struggle, Jacob suspects that he is wrestling with the angel of the Lord in some kind of maybe human form. And he sees as an opportunity to demand and he believes what he thinks he deserves from God. So he wrestles with him in every ounce of his strength. Like I said before, Jacob here was praying for his kingdom to come, not the Lord's. And just before daybreak, the stranger reveals his true identity, which was unmatched with strength. And basically what he does as Jacob is wrestling with this individual, he touches his thigh and paralyzes him. And at that moment, there was this humble moment of Jacob 
because he comes to realize that his previous approach, that he was approaching God, was ultimately doomed because he was always trying to demand things and believe that he deserved things from God because he was wrestling out of his own strength. But Jacob now, knowing that he lost, acknowledges that his approach would never lead to true blessing. So out of in a moment of weakness, in a moment of pain, in a moment of tears, Jacob clings to God. I'm willing to let him go until he receives these blessings from him. So when dawn is even approaching, the stranger who Jacob recognizes now as the Lord tells him to release him because Jacob cannot see God's face and live anymore. So instead on receiving God's blessing and desire to see his face, symbolizing, if anything, his longing for a deeper relationship with him. In response, God blesses Jacob, renaming him Israel, signifying his triumph and overcoming through the wrestling with God. As I mentioned before, the core essence of why we pray is to get God himself. And that's what Jacob did here in the story in Genesis. He continue to cling on to God because I desperately need you. I can't work out of my strength anymore in all the things that I do. Jacob had a born again moment. He came to understand that the only way truly to win is to surrender and by saying, thy will be done. And, exp and expressing ultimately his deep desire for a relationship with God. See, Jacob discovered that God is the ultimate source of his happiness and fulfillment. He is. Church, how many of you are willing to do this in your prayer life? How many of you are still willing to surrender it all to him? Because I think there's still some and many of us who are wrestling with God and yet to give everything to him by saying your will be done. <laughs> there's hope and we have hope by imitating the one who was brave enough to do that on our behalf to the point of death, an act of obedience, an act of his moment of suffering. Jesus was able to tell his father, thy will be done for you and I. And that's why Jesus Christ will always be our real champion because he went off and wrestled with our real problem. And it wasn't us and it wasn't God. The real problem is sin and evil. And Jesus Christ triumphed on the cross because like Jacob, he lost. He submitted to the Father and he said, thy will be done. And in that loss and in that weakness, he triumphed. And he took the punishment for us. Justice was satisfied and that we can be saved. Do you know there's power in prayer? The power of prayer that could change us. The power of prayer that could change our life completely, but also change the culture that is around us. Do you know that and do you believe that? And are you willing to say, thy will be done? Are you willing to surrender all to him? Do you know what it costs? Some of you still are lame and walking almost paralyzed and still are not giving it over to him. Are you willing to surrender to him, the one who loves you? Lay down your arms, humble yourself under the mighty hands and be exalted because of who Christ is. Because in his kingdom, the way to up is down. The way to be free is to submit. The way to power is to serve. The way to lose your life is to find it. And the way to find your life is to lose it. And the weight of the crown is always by the cross. That's the kingdom. That is the truth. 
That is who God is. So I leave you with this quote, and I pray that this quote will resonate deep in your heart, because it did for many weeks for me as I was preparing this message. It was by A.W. Towser. He wrote, Outside the will of God, there's nothing I want. But inside the will of God, there's nothing I fear. That's the place I want to be. To find peace and satisfaction. Because I know my Father. I know His heart. I know what He seeks for in His kingdom. And when you align that in your prayers and start that off, then guess what? You'll be able to say, Thy will be done. May we never have fear in that. So church, the way I want to close out this series is this. Would you stand to your feet at this moment? Of course, we're going to sing it out, but stand to your feet. I want us, and I think it would be really fitting for us to close in this, by reading out loud and praying out loud the Lord's Prayer. But we're going to say the Lord's Prayer old school. That's through the King James Version, because that's how I was taught. So we're going to say it out loud together. And it should be on the screen. If not, hear me and repeat as well. So let us pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thy is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's continue to worship, church. Thank you for listening to our podcast. One Life Christian Church is located in Baldwin, New York. To find out more about the church, visit us at www.onelifeli.com.